1: Why don't you just go home? I've been asking myself that one all night long.
2: So what happened? Why can't you? I met this girl tonight, okay, in a coffee shop. I feel like something incredible was really going to happen here. <laughs> so when I got home, I gave her a call.
1: On the cab on the way down here, all my money flew out the window. I didn't really get along with her that well. What's the matter? I said, I want to see a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperweight. Now cough it up. So I left. Yeah. Tiki! So, I haven't got enough money to get home until I meet this bartender who wanted to lend me the money. That's okay. That's all right. Forget it. Forget it. That's all right. Good boy. So I go back to the girl's apartment, but her roommate's really pissed off at me for the way I treated her friend. This the guy? Hi. So I marched right in there to apologize. Come on. But she'd already killed herself. I was too late. Oh, wow. Lighten up. What is this? I'm in big trouble. I mean, big trouble. Now, this part, you're going to say, oh, you're lying to me. Don't lie to me. But it's true.
2: Mohawk this guy. Yeah, yeah.
1: I couldn't believe that. It's him. Tell him. It's not my fault.
3: I didn't do it. I got to tell who you didn't do what. Help!
1: What's with you? Are you nuts or something? Luckily, there was this girl who saw the whole thing. You're dead, pal. I'm what? So now she's the one in the Mr. Softy ice cream truck who's trying to kill me. They're all trying to kill me. I mean, I just wanted to
4: leave. You know, my apartment, maybe meet a nice girl. And now I've got to die for it, you know? What do you want from me? What have I done? I'm
1: just a word processor. Damn it! Is that all there is? After hours, when anything is can happen, and usually is? does. Is that
4: unbelievable or what?
1: That's all there is, my friends.
3: Then let
4: me...
0: Welcome to the projection booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Chris Dashu. What are they, sailors? Also back in the booth is Mr. Tim Luz. Must be a full moon out tonight. We are kicking off a month discussing comedy films with a look at Martin Scorsese's After Hours. Released in 1985, the film was written by Joseph Minion and stars Griffin Dunn as Paul Hackett, a yuppie stuck in a Kafkaesque night in Soho. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen After Hours yet, please, just for the love of God, go do it. We will still be here. You can hear us later. Don't listen to us now. Watch the movie first. So, Chris, when was the first time you saw After Hours, and what did you think?
3: So, the first time I saw After Hours was when I did a piece on it for the website I used to write for, which was my own website back in the day. And so, that article is now gone. So, I had to go and dig it up, and I I, I found out that I watched this movie about 2016, So it's been a minute, and I haven't watched it since, but I remember it fondly. And I remembered it fondly, so getting to sit down and rewatch it for this, I was really excited. I have watched it now four times for this episode. A, breezy 97 minutes, which I appreciate as someone who spends an inordinate amount of time watching Indian cinema, which often creaks in at two and a half to three hours. Outside of the breezy pace, which Scorsese had to do for a number of reasons, I love this movie. I mean, and I think it's almost like, an. and it's weird to say this, but it feels like this is like the secret handshake for movie fans a little bit. This is one of those conversational secret handshake movies because it's gotten a lot of press recently because it's getting, you know, a Criterion release. But for me, and Mike, you and I quote this often, you will be doing an episode eventually, Cat Out of the Bag, though I'm sure you've mentioned it before, a Goodfellas episode. Goodfellas is not only... One of my favorite movies, but it is my favorite Scorsese movie, bar none. This is a close second, if not almost tied with Goodfellas, because it scratches an itch for me that most movies don't, as weird as this might sound. I would love to be trapped in this movie, as crazy as that sounds. I kind of really resonate with movies that take place kind of in real time, which this movie ostensibly does. But I don't know, I'm, I don't want to say it's an amazing movie, but I will say it is a massively underappreciated movie. And I'm sure after this episode, it will be appreciated a hell of a lot more, not just by your audience, but I think, again, the movie world at large, because it is finally seeing the light of day outside of it being right now on HBO Max. So, you know, you can go check it out on the one of the preeminent streaming platforms. So
4: and Tim, how about yourself? I first remember seeing ads for this on HBO way, way back in the late 80s, back when I was too young to actually watch it, and the little bits I saw made me think it was a much more broad, goofy comedy, so when... I was working at a video store and trying to catch up on the Scorsese movies I missed. I sandwiched this one in there somewhere between New York, New York, and The King of Comedy. And uh, I was very surprised at how it starts off really fun and goofy and gets really kind of bleak and dark midway through. And I really appreciated that. I love movies that do that kind of genre turn of, oh, it's a cute romantic comedy. Oh, my God, now somebody's dead. And now somebody's running for their lives. And I really appreciate how Scorsese pulled that off and used a lot of his – stylistic tricks, a, a lot more of which we'd be seeing in, like, uh, Goodfellas, that to kind of a different effect here, to get us into the mindset of Griffin Dunn's character, and this vague sense of alarm, even before we know bad stuff is going to be happening, there's this sense of, mm, something is off-kilter and not quite right here. I also kind of related to it because I remember at one point when I used to go in and out of Boston, my bus broke down in the middle of downtown Lynn. And if you don't know downtown Lynn, it's a scary, scary place. And there were no trains. And I basically had to run home through a lot of scary neighborhoods and encountered all sorts of crazy stuff. Not as interesting as this movie. But still, I think everyone's been in that situation where you're you end up somewhere where you're like, wow, I'm not sure exactly how I'm going to get home and get out of here. And you go through all sorts of crazy stuff to do it. Plus, living here in Salem, Mass., with our rather strange art scene and how clicky and wi- weird some of the artists are, I definitely related to it on that front as well. But, yeah, I adore this movie. It is weird to me that, to this point, it, like you said, it's known, but it doesn't really get as much acclaim as I feel like it should, and I'm I'm happy to see that's kind of turning around. Yeah, I remember when you broke down in Lynn, because there was that lady on the radio who just kept saying,
0: All right, boppers, Tim is at this address let's make sure to give send him a welcome party, and there were the Gramercy riffs, I think the orphans were there as well. Yeah, it was kind of wild
4: night, I think it is weird watching it this time. I realized, yeah, there's a lot of kind of a warrior's vibe in this movie.
3: <laughs> All it needs is the voice over the radio cluing everybody into griffin dunn's kind of movements throughout the evening and it would essentially be the yuppie warriors like in a lot of ways i mean i don't want to say the word yuppie too much because i feel like we're all gonna be saying it at one point but like yuppie warriors is a is a very good kind of adjacency for what you might define this very hard to define movie as
0: Well, I think he only really moves around like a three-block area. He just keeps moving from place to place to place, and then all of these characters tangentially know each other, which is pretty great. I love that there is these connections between these characters. I saw this one, gosh, it was probably early 90s, maybe 92, 93. I was going out with my ex-wife at the time, and I... I guess she was a big Scorsese fan, because when I think about it, I had tried to watch Goodfellas, and the first time I watched it, I didn't really care for it. And then she was a huge fan and showed it to me, and I was like, okay, now I totally get it. A fan of this movie. Same thing with After Hours. I don't remember if I ever saw After Hours. I had this thing with... you, You talked about the commercial that they showed on HBO, and yeah, it was kind of build as this broad comedy and just seeing griffin done for some reason in the in the 80s he was he just bothered me i don't know if it was like that and desperately seeking susan and just like uh or no he he wasn't desperately seeking susan he was who's that girl
4: yeah that was rosanna arquette in the other one
0: (laughs) yeah so i was just Sorry, I get those movies mixed up, and especially because it's like this kind of, especially Who's That Girl in and After Hours with his connection, it was just like both of them were trying to do like a screwball type of thing, and I just didn't like him for some reason. It took a long time before I finally came around to Griffin Dunn. And now, just for the record, totally on board with Griffin Dunn. I mean, especially, you know, American Werewolf in London. He is one of the many bright stars in a movie that is filled with a galaxy of bright stars. But this one, it didn't land until I rewatched it in the early nineties. And then I got it. And by that time, I mean, even had I watched this in 85, I would have known who most of the people were in this, but by 92, 93, I knew even more, you know, definitely will Patton had made more of a name for himself by that time. I love that even some of the smallest characters in here, like the ballet performing clerk at the restaurant that they go to, is Rocco Sisto, whom if you haven't if you don't know the name Rocco Sisto, I'm sure you've seen the face. I think he's shown up on every single like law and order incarnation that there is. But he is wonderful, especially as Professor Hess in The American Astronaut, one of my most favorite movies in the world. So If you haven't seen that
4: one, definitely see The American Astronaut. Remarking that I remember as a kid being like, hey, it's Dick Miller. And even then I was like, hey, it's Victor Argo. Hey, it's all these people. Oh, my God. Linda Fiorentino. Excellent.
3: Small talent. Whatever happened to him? Martin Scorsese as light operator in the club scene, which I think is I I love his cameo in this movie because it feels very feels very much a perfect cameo for where and what this movie kind of means to Scorsese because it's not that I didn't realize until watching it this time, but when I watched it last time, I watched it and that was it. I didn't do, I was just watching it to watch it and enjoy it as something I'd never seen. And watching it this time with all of the knowledge about what Scorsese was going through at the time, which again, as someone who is, I'm going to assume the youngest of the three of us, my, my kind of frame of reference for Scorsese is things like Goodfellas, less the toxic, apparently toxic director that he was in the eighties because of going over budget, not meeting deadlines, making these, you know, giant bloated movies and also wanting to make temptation last temptation of Christ, which most directors, if they make that movie, never make anything again. And Scorsese is lucky that they did, but I didn't realize where he was in kind of out in the wilds because of like before this movie. And so realizing that it makes this movie for me make more sense Cause it, because it feels so anti-Scorsese while feeling very much Scorsese, but he's never made anything else like this. And that's obvious. And it's, again, like, to your point, Tim, like, it's weird that this is not a bigger part of the Scorsese conversation. Because it it really deserves to be, because he hasn't made anything else really like this. I mean, even a movie that's an hour and a half long, like, God, fucking Goodfellas is two hours, 45 minutes. Like, you know, he's not known for a breezy paced movie. Let's just put it that way. I mean, Goodfellows is, but in terms of runtime, I don't say, well, Scorsese can make an hour and a half movie like the subjects he's tackling normally don't put him at an hour and a half length movie.
0: This was a real interesting confluence of events going on with this movie. I would highly recommend that people go back and listen to our episode on Chilly Scenes of Winter, because Griffin Dunn, Amy Robinson, they were two of the three producers on that, and then Amy Robinson and Griffin Dunn were back on this one as well. You had that, these kind of scrappy, independent producers who are bringing this property forward. You've got Joseph Minion, and we'll hear a little bit of Not necessarily what he has to say directly from his mouth, but via email later on in the show. You've got, who's at this point, a 26-year-old screenwriter who, this is his first, I believe, feature that he's written and recommended to them by, of all people, Dushan Makaveev. Listen to our WR Mysteries of the Organism episode for more about him. And then you've got Michael Ballhaus, who's coming over from, he had been working in the U.S., for a few years now, but he is, this is his first time working with Scorsese. And, you know, he's coming off of, I mean, he worked, what was it? Eight years with Fassbender made 16 movies. He knows how to work quick and efficient. And to your point, Chris, Scorsese is used to hundred day shoots. You know, he's, he's, Five years away from Raging Bull here. He just made King of Comedy, but that was 82. He's struggling like crazy to get Last Temptation made. He's not making these kind of smaller movies like this. And so between the scrappy producers, the real go-getter DP, this bizarro script, and then Scorsese coming in, who almost didn't come in, They were almost a go-picture with Tim Burton, but once Scorsese came back in the picture after they gave him the script, Burton stepped aside. And, I mean, according to Scorsese himself, he's like, I kind of fell in love with making movies again by making After Hours. I'm like, yeah, that makes total sense.
3: Every performance, even if it is just, hey, it's Dick Miller, effectively two lines, they, they maximize everybody's usefulness in this movie. And you can't say that about a lot of movies, but I feel like Scorsese is an actor's director. I think we all know that. And this movie shines because you give an actor's director, all of these great actors who are essentially right before their prime or like cusping right there. And it's like, Oh my God, how do you, how do you, you couldn't do this now. I mean, not with these actors like this, because obviously everybody's visibility is so much higher, but everybody at that time is still operating in a way that's like this is like there's there's no, there's not a bad performance in this entire movie.
4: And whereas with King of Comedy it felt like his style was tamped down a little bit, especially visually just to kind of suggest a TV show and that sort of locked off style here. He can let it really run wild and does some amazing stuff with it. As a result, I kept noticing a lot of particular camera shots he'd use later, like the starting on one part of a, or one side of an actor and then trucking around as they're looking at something else that you see in casino. when De Niro's suddenly realizing the blackjack cheat. You see it twice in this movie with Griffin Dunn looking at the doorway and then suddenly looking out the window of those people having sex or realizing that the, the mob is right outside of the diner. I love those shots. I love all of these push-ins that we do, just
0: one after another, like pushing in on the phone, pushing in on Rosanna Arquette. I mean, they really draw attention to themselves, but in a great way, where I'm like wow, this is so nice. And to see that constantly moving camera that you're talking about. I mean, even the very beginning of the movie where we're in this office and we have that great push in on Griffin Dunn to kind of introduce his character and be like, this is the guy of all of these people in this office. This is the guy who we're going to pay attention to. And he's sitting right next to Bronson Pinchot. And again, another person who at this point in his career, probably not nearly, You know, I don't think he's doing Perfect Strange at this time i can't remember if beverly hills cop had come out at
4: this time I, or not i, I think I that was i think so i thought it was 84 for some reason i could was it be 84? wrong but.
0: okay i couldn't remember if it was 84 or 86 i was trying to remember where i was at in my life when that one came out and yeah just amazing that he's talking with this guy and i love how bronson pinchot is just like i'm not going to do this forever this is just a stopover and as he's talking you're just like oh That's probably how Griffin Dunn felt, but he's still stuck in this office, and I love that little montage of all the people with the paper and just how we go around the entire office and just see paper after paper after paper, and I love that paper comes back in both Kiki's sculpture and then Verna Bloom's sculpture as well, just that paper is everywhere, the paper, of the flyers, the paper, you know. The 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 check that Terry Gar gives him just all of this paper all over the place and I love that it starts with him in that office with him being this you know put upon word processor and that you know paper is such a major theme in here.
3: Well, and don't forget, I mean, they have the interaction at the diner because of a book. So I mean, it, it even goes as far as that, I, which I mean, I think obviously the book that he's reading. It makes sense, I think, in a lot of ways that he's reading that book that he speaks so eloquently about it, given the uh, given the subject material of of said book. But I did notice that that usage kind of throughout the movie of like, again, the money and just a lot of like the again, the the mundane nature of his life and this guy having this adventure. I mean, it's that juxtaposition constantly in this movie.
4: I also like that suggestion that we see other people who really don't want to be in their jobs and want to be doing something else. That cashier at the coffee shop who's practicing dance moves and like, you know, he's probably waiting to be discovered. Yeah, he probably is. He's probably thinking this is just a stopover and I'm going to be, you know, with the New York Ballet soon. Or even Julie talking about how she hates her job and quits and she hates the coffee shop. Coffee shop, yeah. And even Gail who has to be like, you know, I drive an ice cream truck. It's not boring. I rewatched this again last night and just to see –
0: how they put some of those things together. Like I forget about Julie working at the coffee shop or the bar and the copy shop and just like, Oh, well that makes sense. And then to see all of those drawings that she's doing. So you add those two things together of, drawing plus the copy shop and then you're like oh well now i know where these flyers are coming from and i know that she's the one that drew the image of griffin dunn that's on these so okay and you just like pick up these little things as you're watching it and this movie you know i know scorsese describes it like a chinese puzzle box and it's fascinating to see how judicious they were when it came to editing this and of course it's you know the great thomas schoonmaker editing this one with Scorsese, just that they cut out so many little things, but I think every single cut was very valuable. I'm glad that they had deleted scenes on the DVD, but kind of strange because they're just like little snippets of things it doesn't feel like other than a conversation between john Hurd and griffin dunn it doesn't feel like there's a full scene there there's just like little bits of things and i was trying to you know kind of re-edit them back into the movie in my head like oh here's a little bit more dick miller and that's probably before john Hurd comes in and just trying to to piece these things because you're right there's not very much dick miller at all but he is he's such a great little addition to anything and everything that he's in and i love just that he's the one that gives us the title of the movie
3: and to scorsese's point he even admits on on the commentary like we cut things out that i liked and he's like we cut out my favorite scene of the movie which i don't know a lot of directors Walking around willingly admitting that, like, especially on a commentary. And if they're admitting that on a commentary, it's normally not, oh, yeah, we had to do that and it was fine. It's like, hey, this sucked and I had to do this. But I think the movie is so much better for it. That Scorsese said, like, I am going to do something I normally don't do and really work on. Because it was came in at like, what, two and a half hours the first cut? Like, as much as I like this movie, I don't know how well it would work as a two and a half hour movie.
4: There's only one cut I actually really miss, and that's when Paul goes to, I think Tom's name is, the bartender's apartment and tries to sleep there and accidentally hits the switch with the strobe light and the weird pulsing just because Tom is the only character in the movie besides Paul who actually seems normal until that moment. It's the the moment where you're like, oh, there's something wrong with this guy, too. (laughs) I will say, though, it's fascinating to me that this film... Feels like it should be episodic, but isn't. Like, every time he has a weird encounter and you think, oh, that was weird, we're moving on. No, it comes back to hit him again later on. It fits in some other way. The only other movie I think that really gets that right is Miracle Mile. It has that same thing of you'll encounter somebody and you think, okay, they're out of the movie. No, they come back later. Or, no, you need to find this person later. Or these weird kind of different situations that kind of collapse into each other or collide with each other.
3: It feels very much Greek mythology adjacent. Like he is going on this fated journey. You know, I I I read. You know, it's you know he's going to the underworld. I mean, I, maybe that might be a little bit of a a stretch.
0: No, no that's totally it. I mean between the the river restaurant and the terminal bar and I'm just like okay yeah he's he's on this trip down the river and he loses the money to pay for the ferryman and the ferryman's not happy at all.
3: I think that that's, again, another fun aspect to this movie of it feels like this whole thing was faded. No matter how random the encounters are with any of the characters from Catherine O'Hara to Terry Guards, like, nope, you are exactly where you're meant to be this evening to the point where you end up right back where you started. So it feels it feels like even the narrative understands his evening, understands where he needs to get back to. And it's like, well, the 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 things have been set in motion since the moment you talk to Rosanna Arquette and it's like, there's nothing you could do to stop it. Nothing you can do to stop it. And I like the inevitability of the story. I mean, that's why I said, like I would love to live in this movie because in a lot of ways, like the setting is appealing. If you're having like a one night adventure in the middle of Soho, but yet, you know, by the end of it, you're going to end up right back where you were like, eh, you know, nothing wrong with that. This could be fun, especially to break the monotony of Griffin Dunn's seemingly monotonous life.
4: I think he's going to appreciate that monotonous life after this, definitely.
3: Right, exactly. And I think obviously that's, you know, again, a huge point of the movie because they – I mean, again, what – it doesn't feel like a condemnation of yuppies, but it's – he's our hero, quote unquote.
0: Well, he doesn't necessarily feel like a yuppie yuppie. Like he's got – You know, some gadgets at his house and stuff, but he's no, like, Patrick Bateman, you know, you don't feel that kind of venal nature that, you know, oh, I'm going to buy my way out of problems because he doesn't have the money, you know, that he takes a 20 with him and then he puts it in that little change cup and boom, it blows right out the window like a dumbass, but... He doesn't seem like he's just motivated by that. I mean, he is a word processor at an office. He's not some sort of like mover and shaker type of guy. So it's easy to call him a yuppie. I've called him a yuppie several times in this, but he doesn't fit the mold perfectly and he's not one of these like because we'll also get yuppie characters where they're living in the suburbs and doing their thing you know this guy he's got a nice apartment what he's probably like mid 80s i can't remember if he's east side or west side really he could probably just have walked from soho all the way to his apartment in as long as the movie would take but Then the movie's over. Yeah. We don't, we don't want to see Paul's great walk. We want to see him desperate to take a train or take a cab back uptown and everything in, like you said, Chris, it's fate. Everything is stopping him. Like this is the night that we're raising our fares for the subway. He ends up getting $20. Does he go back to the subway station? No. He then tries to take the cab, and the cab takes his money. So he could have done things differently, but just the way they play out, like you said, the fickle finger of fate is really trying to teach him a lesson here.
4: As for the yuppie thing, he also doesn't seem to be as obsessed or focused on status or proving his wealth. He's much more focused on, do I have some kind of artistic endeavor I could do? He keeps talking about that, like when he's finally – Getting the chance to work on a sculpture, like, I feel like a real Soho artist. And he's even a little shocked that Kiki's like, yeah, go ahead. You know, it's easy. Don't worry about it. The other property this kind of reminds me of, while we get a lot of mentions of Wizard of Oz, I kept thinking, well, actually, my wife pointed out that it's a lot like Alice in Wonderland. I mean, Roseanne Arquette is kind of the white rabbit. You have sort of the Red Queen in the form of Catherine O'Hara. But also, I noticed the checkerboard imagery that's all over this movie. That You see that white and black checkerboard at Kiki's place on the cushions. You see it at the Club Berlin, it's all over Terry Gar's bed. It's just visual motif, and I know it's the 80s and maybe that was kind of a popular look, but it just keeps popping up so deliberately
0: says is one of those guys he's not just going to let that pass him by i'm you know and like i'm trying to remember the name of the person that did the uh the production design on this and i'm pretty sure again kind of coming from that griffin dunn and amy robinson camp so they had worked with that person before just kind of brought him along so yeah i can definitely see that being very per- purposeful and i totally agree that Alice in Wonderland is a great companion with this one, but I really have to applaud your whole idea of Miracle Mile because that whole one crazy night subgenre, and I know we'll probably talk about that a little bit more later on, this is right there and a perfect companion piece with Miracle Mile for me. I mean, it, of course, the weight of the story is a little different, you know, nuclear annihil- annihilation versus a guy getting back to his apartment kind of thing, but
4: really great, quirky characters all the way through. And sort of that uh, almost video game logic of oh no, you can't just do this, you have to do this first. You can't just get your keys, you have to go get these keys and he has to open the register to get the money and that runs through that film as well.
3: It's a point and click adventure featuring Griffin Dunn as the lead character.
4: Griffin
0: Dunn, get lamp, get lamp. Give Kiki massage.
3: (laughs) Turn into plaster of Paris sculpture. Let yourself be turned into one I guess is a better way of putting it. It's uh, I, I really appreciate though, you know, putting Griffin Dunn as the as the lead in a movie, because, you know, in a lot of ways he is a a great character actor who is a great supporting actor, like you mentioned in American Werewolf in London, but he rises to the occasion as the lead in this movie. And again, we've mentioned Yuppie, and I think if he were the Gordon Gecko style of Yuppie, you would not find him at all a- empathetic, I guess, or sympathetic as a character, but he, he plays it. I don't know, he plays it perfectly, where it's just, just that little sense that he's sick and tired of being emasculated all evening, folks. This man is tired of being emasculated. Ultimately, isn't that what this movie's about? <laughs> or at least one of the many themes of this movie, there's a shark biting a man's dick written on the side of a bathroom at one point, and they linger on it for a lot longer than they should have, for they're not trying to make a point.
0: Yeah, there's definitely a lot of fear of castration, fear of being trapped. I mean, the whole thing of him being put inside of the statue at the end, and that they have two different artists doing these paper mache sculptures. I mean, of course, that has to be saying something in this movie. We, you know. If you got one, it's it's okay. But if you have two, now you have symbolism here. So <laughs>
4: we definitely have that going on in this movie. Also that you have four or five different characters who are clearly sexually interested in Paul. You've got Marcy. I get the sense Kiki's kind of into him. She finds an excuse to get his shirt off and then the whole massage thing. Julie, definitely. Gail, I think, even a little too. That guy who tries to pick him up on the street, who I love how annoyed he gets when he realizes he's not going to get and He's just like, why don't you just go home? God?" And then – finally june who's like oh she puts him in the sculpture to save him but i think she was planning on leaving him there honestly <laughs> june is such a maternal
0: figure and then when i was watching the behind the scenes the making of documentary which i'm pretty sure they're porting over to the the criterion disc this whole thing of his escape was to crawl inside of her and that she would give birth to him in this like on the side of the freeway kind of thing and i'm like what the hell who the hell came up with that and they have like all the storyboards there like the little martin scorsese sketches to show us what he had in mind i was like what
4: the fuck man that's why well he was talking to other directors to figure out the ending maybe that one came from cronenberg
3: (laughs) sounds like an alex garland movie all of a sudden just like re rebirthing or like dead alive even like all of a sudden she just Pops him out like, yes, what movie is this now? I will say, though, to that point, there are parts of this movie that feel the closest we've ever seen to Scorsese doing a horror movie or leaning on what would be considered horror conventions.
4: Yeah, Shutter Island is the only other one that comes to mind. Yeah.
3: But I think this is even more so because those scenes between Rosanna Arquette and Griffin Dunn in her apartment are very strange and very off-putting and unsettling and the lighting those scenes feel like another movie within this movie and every time they go back into that room the tone of the movie changes but every time we're in that apartment it feels very off and again like like you mentioned Shutter Island is a good example but there are scenes that again like I feel like it's Scorsese just riffing and doing things that again, a guy who is effectively feels like he's been blackballed out of the industry would be like, fuck it, I'm going to do whatever I want, and just kind of play with it. And again, I think it's interesting, because the tone of the movie works. But doing all those things really gives it this kind of really hard to pin down quality and genre. Because again, I think that this movie also plays within so many genres that 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 is why this movie is underappreciated, because genreless movies tend to be hard for people to understand the first time or second time they watch it, because everybody wants to just, I want this to be a horror movie, I want this to be a comedy, it's like, sometimes it's none of those things, but all of them at the same time.
4: Going to that horror idea, and in particular those scenes in that apartment, I kept thinking of Rosemary's Baby, especially because Scorsese actually does the peering around the doorway shot when he hears Kiki and Marcy whispering in the other room. And you get this whole sense of, are these people planning something weird for me? What the heck is going on? And I love that every once in a while we can hear what Marcy and Kiki are whispering, like she starts talking about the pill and how it makes her sick. But it blends into all these other things that we can't quite make out what they're talking about. It makes it so creepy. There is so much of this movie that is in Paul
0: Hackett, Griffin Dunn's head. We've got that thing of him talking about uh, spending the night in the burn ward. And we never get the end of that story. And I love that. To me, that's kind of like the vertigo moment of this movie. Like we never see them save, you know, Jeff from hanging up there. And it's kind of like he's hanging up there the whole time. It's like that story about the burns is hanging in the air and then that becomes kind of the thing where he's looking at Roseanne Arquette's leg and sees these scars, and she has this burn cream in the book about building after a burn, and then you find out later on that, no, there were no scars on her legs. It was a tattoo that you saw, and the tattoo happens to match up with the It's a death head tattoo, and that same death head is the keychain that... John Hurd, Tom the bartender, gives to him. And I love that, you know, he keeps handing it to him like skull first. And that skull is always there. And keys are so important to this movie. The whole like amazing shot of the keys being thrown down by Kiki. And doors are so much a part of this movie. And you could make a real argument that doors are vaginas and vaginas are doors in this movie if you really wanted to get super Freudian about this. And also talking about Freud. How many times does Paul go to a bathroom? He goes to a bathroom in, I think, every single apartment he goes into. He goes into the bathroom at the the River Place. He goes into the bathroom at the Terminal Bar. I don't think he goes into a bathroom in Berlin, the club. But,
4: my God, does he go to the bathroom a lot. He did go to the bathroom in Berlin, but it was cut out because originally he was going to see the graffiti about June on the wall. I almost feel like all those bathroom scenes, because it's always him looking in the mirror after, and I almost feel like it's a reset. It's almost like him thinking, okay, this night's been weird. From here on, I've got it under control. And as soon as he gets out, usually something even weirder happens. Yeah, and he's usually slicking back his hair or fixing his hair, trying to,
0: like, get himself back together. It's that stock-taking moment where he looks into the mirror and he's like, okay, you know, I can do this type of thing. And then, you know, like, the point, he gets dumped on so much that he literally cries out to the heavens. You know, what do you want from me? I'm just a word processor. And that great crane shot looking down at him, and he's just, you know, like, con kind of thing. <laughs>
3: I think two of my favorite shots, cause you guys have mentioned some, some really great shots in the movie are this kind of pair of shots, one behind him while he's running. And then the other one in front of him while he's running. And I know that they mentioned that those are the trailer shots. And I totally understand why they were used as trailer shots, but I love because those scenes and those two shots are what evoke the, the warriors for me, that kind of like helplessness in the middle of the night, in the middle of the city and the city is bearing down on you. And I love those two shots kind of in, you know, comparison to one another. But again, it, it leads to this idea of like, the world is out to get you, man. Like, and you may not have done, I mean, again, is culpability in all of this, I think is an interesting question because Rosanna Arquette kills herself, but not because of him. We would hope, but it's never made clear, but he tries to make amends with it himself in a really poor way, <laughs> in a way that feels very poor to the point where it's like, don't even bring it up, dude, because Catherine O'Hara is not the person to bring it up to. But I just like, again, like you mentioned, there's this scene, Mike, where he's begging for help from the heavens. It's like, dude, the heavens are what's out to get you. Stop begging for help. They are not listening. And that's that Greek mythology nature, which is like they don't they're they're not bothering themselves with with the folly of man. Even as you're having the, again, worst slash best evening of your life. Because he'll never forget this evening, I would assume. That's the assumption here.
4: He'll be in therapy for years, yeah. I like the fact it would have been very easy to make him a full-on yuppie and make him actually kind of deserve this and the audience is supposed to be cheering on his downfall. But I like that, no, he's not a terrible guy. He would keep seeing him do de- try to do decent things and it usually gets him in more trouble. When he sees Pepe and Neil with the sculpture, he's like, oh my god, they robbed Kiki. I've got to help her. Or that he actually goes back to julie there because he's worried oh my god is she gonna kill herself now i can't have that on my conscience and that gets him in trouble or even that scene where he kind of the marcy's death kind of finally hits him in julie's apartment and he has that breakdown and like he says i don't even know this girl but he's like mourning her in this moment and kind of accepting that maybe i had something to do with this yeah the relationship between
0: he and marcy is very interesting this whole thing of you know there's it's a seduction There's this whole thing of him making that phone call to Kiki, getting put on the phone with her. He comes down, they end up going out for coffee and there's a kiss that happens afterwards, but she isn't into it. But then she ends up kissing him and it's like, okay, what is going on here? And I think eventually he just gets tired of being bounced back and forth and not knowing where she stands. And he just, Eventually, like after, you know, he gets a joint and it's like, man, you're supposed to mellow out. But, you know, he he just starts laying into her about stuff. But then her reaction, I I had to rewind the movie quite a few times to be like, did I miss something? Because she just gets super, I don't want to use the hysterical word, but she just loses her shit and starts crying as he's leaving the apartment. But he's not a bad guy. Like, he's not attacking her. He's not. Verbally or physically, he's not attacking her at all. He just feels it feels like he's fed up, and he's just like he becomes super cynical and just like what the fuck, Marcy, come on! And then that that's like after that, he turns a corner, and the film literally turns a corner. It's like that's the perfect spot for the first act to end and the second act to begin.
4: He also has that problem of he keeps trying to bring up innocent conversation, and it keeps leading her to some other awful anecdote. He's like, I like I'm putting you through the ringer, and I've actually been on dates like that where you say something innocent, and it's like, oh, do you have any pets? Yeah, they all just died, and you're like, damn it.
3: (laughs) I just can't keep walking into all these rakes on the floor. Whatever will I do? I
4: did notice that it looks like he's ready to flee after Kiki falls asleep. Like, he gets up, and he's ready to go, and sees her coming up the stairs, and like, oh, no, I should go back in. And I wondered, going back and watching it again another time, you hear Kiki's comments about, like, you know, a lot of women have scars, and it's almost like that starts his thinking, or... The phone conversation she has with Marcy that we hear one side of like, no, well, you invited him. No, I'm not going to tell him. You have to deal with that. And it's like, starts his thinking of, all right, what has she got going on? Or even the pharmacy thing. Oh, don't worry. It's under control. And he's like, what is she getting at the pharmacy then? Right. After midnight, she's getting stuff at the pharmacy. And I
0: love that this is a New York where all these places are open. When he talks about getting coffee with her and she's like, oh, it's not even two o'clock yet. I'm like. Yeah, that's what I love about New York, and it's the New York of 1985. I don't hate to sound like you know the cranky old man, but the last time I went to New York, it was just like the whole city starting to shut up at 10 o'clock, and I'm like, "What the fuck, man? This is the city that never sleeps." You guys, you got in the song, even come
3: on. Well, and that's what I mean when I say like this is a movie I would love to live in because like this New York feels like the way I would like to always remember New York which is the New York of After Hours, or again, I this kind of a beyond the tangent comparison, but something like, again, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, even that was something I grew up in, but it's, it's still within 10 years of this. It's that's like, there's a feel that that mid 80s to mid 90s New York has on screen, that the 70s New York has, it's very distinctive. And it's like you said, Mike, I've been to New York, I'm not gonna I, I didn't go there as a big city person, so I'm a bad I'm a bad judge. But I would like to go and visit this New York that exists. This kind of again, like late night on the streets, having a weird adventure. Cause yeah, you can go have a coffee at two or three in the morning. Like I can't do that here any more than I'm sure any of us can. But places like this, yeah. And that's what fuels for me this this movie in a lot of ways. My enjoyment of it is in a lot of ways, it is a nightmare, but it is also something that a lot of us have never gotten to experience and we're experiencing it through Griffin Dunn. Just like, I mean, so many of these again, one night, one crazy night movies are really about living vicariously through characters who we hope we're never in a position to go get a Mike Tyson tattoo on our face, like in the hangover. Cause I mean, the hangover is just this, but you don't remember this and it's being recounted to you the next day, but it's that one crazy night thing again. There's a a reason these kinds of movies are popular. This one, again, not the case, obviously, but there's a reason that people resonate with this setup or this kind of narrative structure, obviously.
0: I did love in the commentary that Scorsese was talking about all the films from – Alan Dwan, the director Alan Dwan, and how they are all set up on these, like he did the original Brewster Millions, this whole thing of like, well, you need to do And I think you mentioned this before. You need to do this before you can do this before you can do this. And just all of these things are all set up. And then it's a matter of like the resolution of that. And you set up so much tension with the situation. And then you eventually get that catharsis of everything working out in the end. This one. You know, yeah, kind of things work out in the end with him going back to work the next day. That's going to be a real rough day at work after he hasn't been able to sleep at all the night before, and him coming in completely covered in all of this, like, plaster of Paris dust and just looking like a ghost the way he comes back in. And I've always seen those gates as being kind of like the gates of heaven and the way that they shut them up at the end of the day and how he like just narrowly makes his way out. And then he's there right at the beginning of the next day when the gates are opening up and he's that first person in the office, which is always just the best time to be in the office, that first person in there. And everything is so freaking quiet before all your dumbass coworkers come in. Ah, oh, it's
4: it's a beautiful time.
3: Your dumbass co-workers who don't know how to use word processor.
4: You can actually get some coffee. Every time I've seen this movie, I'm intensely bothered by the fact he never gets his apartment keys back, and I'm always like, "What's he going to do?" Is I know he has to go to like probably the superintendent. I'm like, I lost my keys. Can you help me out? But that really that sticks with me.
3: <laughs> He's unable to go to Soho now. I think so. I think right? so. Is that also I think the so. Assumption? By the end of the movie, it's like this man is not allowed in Soho forever. And then apparently there's an alternate universe where he and I I this is one of the things in the movie that I, I was curious where you guys come down on this. People in Soho were murdering people as well. Because there's like that whole thing of like finding that clipping on his arm, Catherine O'Hara does, and she she's like, Hey, it says that they murdered a dude and they couldn't even identify him because they beat the shit out of him here in Soho
0: sounds like he was the first guy to do the apartment break-ins, and the angry mob found that guy and beat the shit out of him. And now Griffin Dunn is the next guy that they're going to do this to. I mean you know like the the whole joke of new york right is like you're there screaming help 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 and, you know murder rape all this stuff and everybody just walks past you doesn't listen you know shuts the windows but these neighbors actually care about one another which is odd that there is this feel for you know oh we have to look out for one another and we're going to be a vigilante mob led by the lady in the mister softy truck
4: here <laughs> and track this guy down it's a question of do they like look out for each other or are they worried about their stuff?
3: Right. The ultimate capitalist nightmare. My stuff being stolen from me.
4: I also love that that little piece of newspaper comes from that sculpture that looks like it could have been that first guy's last moments on Earth of you know recoiling like, please don't hit me. And I always appreciate when somebody has to get corrected about things. He's like, oh, yeah, that looks like
0: the shriek. And she's like, the scream.
4: The George Siegel line at the end, I absolutely love. Oh, that my one. God.
0: <laughs> that is so good. Yeah. <laughs> and I love that it's Cheech and Chong, that they just kind of show up out of nowhere, and we just get them throughout the, the movie as they're going through here, and that they are ripping off places, but apparently they didn't rip off Kiki.
4: No, that maybe inspired them to go back to ripping off because they tried to do it legitimately. And <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. You pay for something and your stuff gets stolen.
3: And this is how you use Cheech and Chong in a movie without them getting in the way of things or feeling like you're leaning on. Because I just got done watching Yellowbeard and that movie leans on them a lot in a way that doesn't work very well. But here they're interspersed just enough that. They're having a crazy evening of their own, seemingly having to deal with interacting with Griffin Dunn and the things he's creating problems for. But I really like the two of them in this movie. I mean, again, there's a perfect amount of them because they don't – if there's too much, it's like they're just getting in the way of things. And like,
4: I wondered about their backstory because they're both wearing like green military style jackets and – Cheech Marin has a jacket with a reference to Pleiku, and it was, when I die, I'll go to heaven because I've spent my time in hell. And I'm like, were these guys like buddies in the war, and this is kind of where they've ended up after Vietnam? There's a lot of weird military stuff. I I noticed that Catherine O'Hara has a King Kong Company patch, just like Travis Bickles, or almost like Travis Bickles on her jacket. And it's a really subtle thing, but there's a lot of weird military stuff in the background of scenes like that.
3: Well, and it touches on vigil- street vigilanteism the way the taxi driver does. I mean, again, because we, we literally have a mob of people chasing after Griffin Dunn at one point in this movie.
4: She already has the whistle, which made me wonder, maybe she's just playing it up when she reads that newspaper thing. Maybe she's the one who led the, the assault on that first guy.
0: <laughs> yeah, I love that she's got the whistle already and that it's just ever present with her. How cute is Catherine O'Hara in this movie? She's like
4: freaking adorable, right? She is a, she's amazing, yeah. <laughs> Terrifying, but adorable. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. In a film filled with
0: beautiful women, she just stuck out for me. Where I was just like, "Oh my gosh, she is so adorable!" And I think this was like her feature film debut. What a debut!
3: And she really knows how to get under his skin too. Because boy, that thing where she's doing the the thing, reading numbers to him while he's trying to punch in a phone number. Who oh boy. Cool boy. Griffin Dunn is not having any of it. And that freak out that he has at her, one of the the only freak out in the entire movie, other than screaming at the heavens, man, he's real mad. And that I love that scene where he just like screams at her and he's like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's like, why? Are you, she's fucking with you, man. Like, why are you sorry? Like, what are you apologizing for here? Like, it's, you're at your wits' end, man. But I love that like momentary just like letting down of the facade where he just freaks out at her because it's it's a it's a powerful moment for his character finally just I've had enough for fuck's sake like give me a moment and nope 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 no you don't get a moment run run for your life
0: he tries to be so polite and when John Hurd is kicking open the uh cash register or trying to, and just to see the the wincing of Griffin Dunn as that's going on, he's just like, oh, you know, like don't 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 upset things, don't do this for me, don't do this on my account, you know. I love the, the reactions that it gives. And I, I mean John Hurd is fucking fantastic in this movie. just in a movie filled with great performances, his just stood out so much for me.
4: He's so likable and friendly. I mean, when he comes up and he offers him a drink and offers to pay for his subway fare, it's just like, oh, yeah, this is exactly kind of the stereotypical friendly bartender you want to meet. And in the final cut of the movie, he is the most normal person we see. I mean, he has a little bit of an anger issue, but when he freaks out later, it feels very justified. And that's the the
0: scene that Scorsese was talking about that he didn't want to cut, which was when – Griffin Dunn, Paul runs into Tom John Hurd out on the street at one point. It's after uh, Tom has gone and identified Mercy, Roseanne Arquette's body, and he is just so devastated, and they have given him a... uh, suicide note and it says you know i didn't kill myself because of my beloved tom or something like that and he's just like what does this mean if she didn't kill herself because of me who did she kill herself because of and he's just asking griffin dunn this and of course griffin dunn's just like oh fuck i don't want to give away what i know and i love that scene that was really good i can understand why they cut it the movie actually runs a little bit better without it But I was like, Oh wow. And then, yeah, that kind of also leads to, Oh, you know, you're really tired. Go sleep in my place. And, you know, Griffin Dunn goes in. There's the picture of Marcy there and he turns that down. And then he goes to go to sleep and hits this switch. I don't know if he thinks it's a light switch or if his hand just hits it by accident, but all of a sudden, yeah, this like moaning and groaning and disco and lights and. He just completely gets freaked out because of all the strobe lights going on. It was kind of nice to see, like you said, that Tom was a little bit of a freak as well. Not as bad as like Dudley Moore and that one of those Chevy Chase Goldie Hawn movies, but he definitely had quite a setup going on.
3: Well, speaking of having setups, Terry Gar's apartment is a nightmare, a made real, a 60s nightmare made real. I, I love where he's like, oh yeah, the waitress, uh, she left me a note, he's like, oh yeah, Miss Beehive 65, and it's like, even he doesn't understand what's going on with Terry Gar's character, it's, she's the only character that feels like she comes in from a different movie, but her coming in from a different movie, and even time period, just gives, like, gives whatever's going on in the movie at the time, just like a complete over, this overhauls the movie because you go into her apartment and it's like you've stepped into something else entirely to the point where Griffin Dunn's like, I die. Uh, yeah, I don't even understand where I am anymore. Like She is such a such a strange character in a movie full of strange characters
4: the uh, shelf full of aquanet or i just love the symbolism of the mouse, mouse traps all around the bed
3: <laughs> oh boy yeah
4: it almost looks like a religious
0: shrine with the, the way that the mouse traps are in this hemisphere this semicircle going
4: around her bed or even the beautiful detail that if you look at all the drawings that are on her walls they're all people from the 60s or 50s and it's like bob dylan but it's 1960s bob dylan Yep. The Beatles, mid-60s as well. Yeah, it's so good.
0: And the fact
3: that she leaves her house looking like that. I mean, she's in in a walking anachronism, like the way that she looks. And that shot of her sitting at the table waiting for him when he comes out of the bathroom, just sitting there with her hands crossed waiting for him. It's like, where did you come from? What year do you think you live in? Because they're in this like, Bar at three in the morning where there's this like sad couple dancing in the background, which already doesn't make any sense and is out of place. But then she is just woefully out of place. And it's like, what? It's just Soho is just weird, I guess.
0: When he comes back and it's the two leather daddies that are making out there. This is Soho. This is like ground zero for gays. And I love that, you know, it's it's not they're not treated weird you know like you've got that little bit of awkwardness with the guy that he picks up or that thinks he's picking him up or whatever but yeah there's very like you know he does i think there's an f-bomb at some point you know not fuck but the other one
4: yeah rosanna arquette says it about the guy that was calling the apartment yeah that made me win that's right but otherwise it's like
0: yeah, these guys are watching out for the apartment. These guys are making out the you know, this guy's trying to get a little love and excitement in his life. It's not like, oh, weirdos, what freaks. And I love that the two guys that are making out at the bar seem so concerned when they find out that that Marcy killed herself and they're just like, Oh my god, you know, and just like real genuine human emotion.
4: And I love that Paul reacts to them just like, you know, I don't know what to say. Like he doesn't make it a weird thing or anything like that. And yeah, they're two of the relatively normal characters in the film.
3: Well, speaking of Leather Daddies, you mentioned him once, but I think it bears repeating another actor who has a great performance and is not in the movie a whole lot. The Leather Daddy, Will Patton, as Horst. Oh, my God. Who just shows up and it's like, oh, my God, this guy's terrifying.
4: His intensity. Yeah. Just like, I think you better apologize.
3: (laughs) (laughs) It's like, what are you going to do if I don't? I don't want to find out. I don't. Maybe I do. Maybe I don't. Who knows? But. He, man, and Will Patton's not, like, a big dude. Like, he's not, like, six foot five, but he might as well be.
4: I think it's his stillness in the scene that he barely moves. He just kind of stands there and stares at him. And they cut a bit where he goes over the piano and starts playing it. And I'm glad they did. Just having him standing there staring is so much creepier. And then when he's there at Berlin
0: and you just see him and her together, him and Kiki together, and that whole thing. I love that, you know, this is a Scorsese film And we're talking about Taxi Driver earlier and this whole thing of, oh, this is Mohawk Night. And I'm like, I was waiting for Travis Bickle to come walking in.
4: (laughs) He
3: should have been the
0: taxi
4: driver that he stipped the 20 bucks. He could have gotten shot. Right,
3: right. That guy was going to meet with uh, Travis Bickle at the coffee shop to Yeah, with Peter
4: Boyle. Yeah,
0: exactly.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
0: One person, two persons. Can you imagine this guy I
3: picked up up tonight?
0: Yeah. <laughs> he stiffed me 20 bucks. He
4: said it flew out of the cab. <laughs> right. It's a subtle detail. I love that the razor they're using to give him the mohawk is actually the sound of a chainsaw. Because immediately there's just that implicit violence in that moment.
0: <laughs> will Patton at this time had just been in Desperately Seeking Susan. So another connection uh, there with uh, Madonna and Rosanna Arquette. Wow. it will just keep circling around. That is another movie Aiden, that's a freaking fantastic movie but that's another one where you just watch how many people are in that one you're like holy shit it's John Turturro holy shit it's Giancarlo Esposito holy shit it's Laurie Metcalf Robert Joy who most people know as one of the coroners from one of the various CSI shows is there I mean there's so many people you are just like oh wow this guy got Victor Argo is another person that shows up, you know, he's great in this as one of the two guys running the uh the river diner that they keep going to. Which
3: is my most my favorite most uncomfortable scene in the movie. Where he's like, "I'll have a coffee and a hamburger. I'm just going to go put uh, $5 in the meter." And he just like dips the fuck out of there like we've all been there before hopefully maybe not maybe you've avoided that situation in your life but that is a very uncomfortable situation i love the way the movie handles it Where it's just like yeah he's just gonna leave
4: that moment where he comes back and victor argo comes in and puts the food in front of him gives him that look like oh you thought you were gonna get away nope <laughs> Yeah, in that amazing
0: moment when that punk rock girl just comes in with that flyer and hands it to him like there's nobody else in the restaurant. She doesn't say a word, just hands over that flyer and basically gives him, you know, here's your Deus Ex Machina. This is how you're gonna escape this whole
4: thing. And it's it's shot like he's like cowering, like, oh God, now what? What is it? What is it? And then she just hands that to him, like, oh, okay. <laughs> and and the club he couldn't get into before, now it's easy. Now he is the invite. <laughs> That fucking doorman scene. Oh, <laughs> oh it's God. amazing.
3: <laughs> he's such an ass, but the best kind of dorm, like bouncer asshole character.
4: I'll take your money so you don't feel like you've you know, left anything unturned. And I love that he gives him back the quarter that he's going to use in the jukebox later with June. It's like, you're going to need this quarter later.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like he knows. He- He seems to be an agent of fate. And it's like, you weren't really supposed to come in here this first time, thus the Mohawk and you trying to escape. But later on, now's the right time. Now you've got, you know, talking about video games. Now you've got that, that past, that, that special thing that you had to collect from, you know, the wizard to do this, to do that. And now you've got the right thing. Now I'll take this and you can enter into the club.
4: Your XB level of annoyance has finally reached the right level. You can go in.
0: <laughs> it just, it all
4: comes together so well. And
0: talking about the ending, we talked about that mother ending earlier. And. There was the ending, the screenplay that I read, ended with him just being put into the back of the van and the van driving off, and that's it. And I love that the ending that we have comes to us courtesy of Michael freaking Powell, you know, of Powell and Pressburger fame, of, I think he was married to Thelma, if memory serves. Yeah, so, like, he comes in, he's like, oh, you should have him end up back at work. And, of course, as he at first is just like... Poof yeah, whatever, get out of town kind of thing, and goes to Spielberg, goes to De Palma, goes to all of his old buddies, like, what should I do with this ending, all this kind of stuff, and then finally comes back to Powell's ending.
4: And it really is the perfect ending. It feels right to have it go full circle, and I love that even though they don't do the of Bloom giving birth to him, it feels like a rebirth, him coming out of that shell.
3: Well, and it makes you wonder, you know, does again like his reaction to the evening obviously would lead you to believe he leads a rather mundane life, but the way he reacts when he get ba- gets back to the office might lead you to believe that this has happened before because he's not making a big deal of it when he walks into the office it's like ho hum back to my normal life. When the rest of us would be like, I'm taking the day off. Like I'm not going into work after this fucking nightmare. Like I'm th- I'm firmly staying at home for the next week at least. Just so I can get my bearings as to what just happened when I evaded murder and being murdered and possibly killing someone and having to be responsible for it. I've evaded all of that. Possibly.
4: Another weird connection I got, and I think the ending kind of backs it up for me, is looking at Paul compared to Bud Baxter from The Apartment. That they both start off as these cogs in these machines in front of their machines, and they want to get out. They want to meet a girl. They end up going home and just watching the TV, bored. And it's almost like the two movies have the exact opposite message. That in the apartment, it's like Bud has to get out of this company and go, you know, be a mensch and find his true self. And this movie's like, no, go back to your job. Don't go to Soho. Don't you know go seeking yourself. Just be happy where you are. <laughs> I was amazed at the
0: reviews of this film. I don't know if you guys had a chance to read those, but like the Pauline Kael review was particularly vicious. And it was this whole thing of basically, Marty, stay out of Soho. You feel like you're an alien, like you're looking at these people like they're a bunch of weirdos. Why are you doing this? You're not some sort of anthropologist. You have no right to be doing this. I think she makes mention of Rosanna Arquette's performance being particularly bad, that it felt like she was in a high school play. And she really calls out that moment, that whole surrender Dorothy moment, which I thought was a fantastic moment. I love that story, too, on the commentary where it's, I think it was Ballhaus saying, you know, oh, Marty said, you know, we've got one in the can, just do one for yourself. And that's when she just let the shackles fal- fall and do what she ended up doing for
4: the movie, which is a fantastic performance, I think. The way she turns from, you know, repeating it, he just couldn't stop, he just couldn't stop, so I ended it. (laughs) That tone switch is so beautiful. Yeah, the reviews kind of mystified me. I I did read Ebert's, and he actually really loved the movie, but found it really grueling to watch. I did think it was interesting that he looked at it only as a stylistic exercise and didn't really feel like the movie had anything else on its mind. And yeah, well, to Scorsese, it was. Let me just do a quick movie. I do feel like there's so much more going on than just a stylistic exercise here.
3: I hadn't read or heard the Joe Frank monologue the first time I watched this. But what's funny is, you know, again, like the critics said what they said but so much of this comes from that if you had listened to that monologue you would know that like so much of what is in this movie is represented in the original original source material that it's like might seem like they're spinning their wheels but they're like you said tim there's more going on here i just it's, it's not an attack if it were anybody else making the movie maybe it's an attack on soho as like oh look at the weirdos being weird together but scorsese from new york like why don't He's not, he's not, it's, it's, there are several scenes that seem voyeuristic, but they're not, it's not the entire movie is like, oh, the peek behind the curtain of the weirdos. Like, in a lot of ways, it's more just Soho, yes, but also just New York at large in a lot of ways. like I The Pauline kale review felt a little, eh, fine, you got a bone to pick with the movie, fine, like, whatever. But seems like you have a bone to pick with Martin Scorsese, frankly, like, Okay.
0: Yeah. She made her reviews very personal.
4: I remember she had the same thing with De Niro for years, that she was a champion of him, And then there was a point where she kind of turned around and like, no, I don't like anything he's in now. As opposed to De Palma, where it's just like, oh, Brian De Palma took a shit and filmed
0: it. Oh my God, five stars. So you mentioned the Joe Frank monologue, and we need to talk about that because that's kind of the elephant in the room. And I was unaware of this at first, that The I would say pretty much the first act of this movie is based on, let's say, about 12 minutes. There's a Joe Frank. Joe Frank was a monologuist. He worked on the radio for a lot of years. He worked on NPR, CKRW, which I... Sorry, KCRW, which that's Santa Monica. I said CKRW at first because I'm from Detroit, and we listen to a lot of Canadian radio stations. But... He recorded one of many monologues, and it was called Lies, and then the original script of this was called Lies, and the entire, I would say the pretty much the first act, this whole idea of this guy and this girl meet, and she starts talking about how her roommate sells plaster of Paris cream cheese and bake cream cheese bagel paperweights and that he ends up giving her a call, goes down to buy some paperweights. She starts to tell these stories about how she being the Marcy character tells some very similar stories as far as being raped by an old boyfriend that had lasted for six hours, but she was asleep through most of it. And he just starts to get really mad at How he can tell that she's just fucking with him. I think that pretty much sums it up. Do you guys have anything to add about the Joe Franklin piece? Or Joe Frank? I keep saying Joe Franklin, who's a totally different person.
3: I was really surprised that they mentioned the plaster of Paris paperweights of cream cheese and bagels. But I guess if it's going to come from anywhere that specifically weird, it's got to come from the original source material. I, I mean, it's funny. They said that they didn't know how to end the movie. And I feel like that monologue just kind of also just ends unsatisfyingly, and I would say that the movie's ending is very satisfying compared to the source material, but I think my big takeaway was just surprised at how much of that makes it into the movie. Also, they keep mentioning that they never say what they're saying to one another initially, but Joe Frank is like, oh, they're just Talking to one another and neither one of them is actually interested or saying anything interesting. And I like how that is somewhat reflected in the movie where it's like, ultimately, they're really not saying much of anything to one another. They're just kind of musing about the things that they like, I, again, as surface level almost as they can.
4: Not to, you know, excuse possible plagiarism but i started to wonder if minion used that monologue as sort of a starting point and like started building the screenplay and thinking well i'll go back and and make that different make it original later and then build so much of it into this intricate puzzle it's like well i can't really do that i can't really change any of that now because it's all built on that but it is kind of surprising just how much of it is directly from that monologue there
0: are no interviews on this episode i thought for sure after we did that Chilly Scenes of Winter episode, you know, I've got Amy Robinson's contact information. I've got Griffin Dunn's contact information. Great. It's a shoe in. No problem. We're going to have no problem doing this. Griffin Dunn has not written back to me since we did our interview. I hope I didn't piss him off or anything. We thought I had a pretty good conversation. Amy Robinson, who I don't think I have it in the Chilly Scenes of Winter episode, but she really didn't seem to like me very much at all because I, you know how I, you guys, you've listened to the show before, right? You might've even been on it a few times. The whole thing of like, hey, so tell me how you got your start. And I thought it was very interesting that she worked Mean Streets and then eventually produces this film. So I start to talk to her about Mean Streets and she's just like, is this an interview about my acting career? Because I don't want to talk about my acting career. And I'm like, okay, I'm sorry. And she just like started to go off on me. And I really had to like, I'm so sorry. You know, we'll just talk about chili scenes, winter. That's it. And just like had to really you know, put out a fire with that. So I, Still thought, okay, she's producing this movie. It's one of the most successful things that she produced. Maybe she'll talk to me about this. She wrote back to me and said, Hi, Mike. I am not able to discuss After Hours. Sorry, Amy Robinson. Not able to. That just seems so bizarre. What a weird word choice. Like, I don't want to. I can't. You know, I'm not able to. I'm just like,
4: okay, so bizarre yeah, it's a little weird but considering it's a movie where miscommunication and suddenly saying the wrong thing and all of a sudden you get a weird reaction from a woman somebody it's maybe it kind of fits in you know
3: you know there does seem to be some things going on behind the scenes here that we will never know about right like and they they hint at it but oh boy what the fuck <laughs> like that's that to me like that to me's is exactly what you said, Mike. It's like, there it is. Like, there it is. Out in the open. Like, you can't talk about it. And I think that leads to why this is sitting in, you know, not not anything for 20 years. And now it's finally on Criterion. Wonder what hoops they had to jump through to get it to happen. Because haven't they been talking about releasing this on Criterion for literally ever? Like
0: Either Griffin or Amy mentioned it on the show. All those years ago when we did Chili Since the Winter, they said there's going to be a criterion disc. And I can't remember if that was them saying it off the air or if I said it, but basically like I have been pilloried a little bit because there will be so many times where it's like, well on the projection booth, they said that this was going to come out on Criterion. Where the fuck is it? And it was like, it was my fault or something. Like, I gave bad information. So I'm just like, well, I'm sorry. That's what I heard. That's what, that's what these two producers told me was going to happen. It's
3: like Bill Murray and Ghostbusters. It's what I heard.
0: So the other person that I reached out to, you know, and of course I couldn't reach out to John Hurd because he's fucking dead. And there are a few other people. <laughs> How
3: dare I he know. die? How dare you die, John Hurd? <laughs>
0: I was, you know, I was so sad when he died because he was so nice and he gave such a good interview when we talked to him before. But anyway, I talked to Joseph Minion and Minion, he and I went back and forth and we still go back and forth via email a lot. And it's like, will he, won't he kind of thing. And I told him, Tuesday's my night that I'm recording this. That's it. You know, I'm done with you basically because he won't go on the record. But I am going to read an email that he sent to me I hope that this is okay because he went into some details here. So, this is from Joseph Minion. The truth is that I had, in fact, late one night while a film student in Columbia, fallen asleep listening to Joe Frank. Tell that very short story on air, and unfortunately, dumb 25-year-old that I was, some details from the story went into my screenplay. Stupid, stupid, stupid. These details occur at the beginning part of the movie. My script goes way, way beyond that guy's story, but naturally his legal team argued the whole premise of the movie came from him as opposed to those few details, and it was a very, very traumatic you can imagine, legal shit show that I had to endure until it was finally all settled. The anxiety it was causing me at the time squeezed the vampire's kiss script out of me. But that was in the late 80s. In other words, the thing is over. I made reparations for my stupid but minor mistake, and I moved on, for God's sakes. But, years later... When the internet took off, and one, of course, this rumor got out because that's what people do, and two, the advent of the troll occurred, I became aware of, well, a lot of nastiness, the wild west of the internet, and of course, completely out of my control, a feeling that I can only describe as being like being skinned alive. For some stupid $20 bill flying out of a taxi and a plaster of Paris bagel and cream cheese paperwork, and I repeat... This had all already properly been dealt with legally years earlier, but these trolls, they kept coming. In fact, I had a heart attack a few years ago, which I have zero doubt was directly caused by this online character assassination, I swear. So I think you can see why I have a great, great apprehension about talking about After Hours on a podcast, as I'd almost have to address this elephant in the room, a horrible and very traumatic incident that I moved on from, but that I almost certainly would wake up the cancerous trolls to take up the keyboard warrior thing all over again because people are like that this world that we live in but you know of course i don't really feel like making myself vulnerable to another heart attack so mr what you see my predicament there's all sorts of informative creative stuff that i can say about both movies i was talking about motorama as well being the writer for christ's sakes but i don't but I really don't know the prospect of going into this fucking lawsuit thing. And I'm not sure just avoiding it entirely as smart either. As the truth is, yes, I did steal a couple of goddamn details from that guy's radio rap. So not mentioning it would be disingenuous. I just don't know. There you go. I honestly don't know if I'm being oversensitive or wisely guarding against future heart attack inducement or what I'd be interested in your thoughts slash reaction. So that was from Joseph Minion a few months ago. And then the last series of emails I got, he was talking to the Criterion people, and he's got a couple short films that he made around the time he was trying to get them to put them onto the Criterion disc. But as you guys both know criterion these days basically are like no we're not going to take any new material we'll take what's on the dvd and we're going to port that over maybe you'll get a new fucking essay and that's it take it you piece of shit pay us 50 dollars for this blu-ray
3: which is surprising given that adam long who does movie geeks united's home entertainment thing he's always telling me about columbia with their like Things that they're releasing, they're releasing the movie and then the TV show based on the movie on the Blu-ray as well. Like, look, I think this whole thing sucks that nobody can talk about this movie because it's a conversation that now cannot be had. A lot of the people that could have had the conversation can't, won't, never will because some of them have passed away now. And as far as I'm concerned, if you want to have your side known for the one and only time this Podcast, The Projection Booth, is the platform to do that on. This is the preeminent movie podcast for edutainment-style movie information where you're entertained and you're learning a shitload at the same time. If you're going to do it, do it here, man. Like, Amy Schumer stole jokes straight up, and she still has a career. Your career can weather it. It's how you respond to it that is more important.
4: I do feel for him, though, because... Having actually gotten some internet criticism recently, and even even the most gentle one can sting a lot. I can't imagine what it would be like to come on here and then have that reopened again and have to deal with that all over again. So I do kind of understand the idea of it happened. I want to leave it in the past. You know, with putting stuff on the Criterion disc, at least there, he's not going to have people reaching out to him directly. So I do get it. I don't know if it's exactly just a couple things filtered in through sleep because that's, that's like you said, the first act of the movie. But I do feel for him. I mean – he fessed up to it, they paid the settlement, it's kind of done, and I do think he's a good writer. I love Vampire's Kiss, that movie's absolutely hilarious,
3: so. Maybe he, sh- he should have been making Plaster Paris croissants, then you'd be fine. I don't know, like, again, like, that thing right there, for me, I was expecting to hear something similar. I wasn't expecting to hear that. It's just like, da, 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 da. everything bagel and cream cheese paperweight. I was like, whoa, like, wait this is very on the nose. Yes, it goes elsewhere, but like there you go.
0: Yeah, not to not to badger this guy or anything, but just that he named the screenplay Lies
3: at first.
0: You know, the name of the Joe Frank piece was Lies and you name your screenplay Lies. It's like that feels A lot more than I was falling asleep and details filtered into my mind, you know, that the name of the story came in there and that you named it after that rather than a night in Soho or something like that.
4: I could understand like a joke or a line or even a particular direction of a scene filtering. in. I've done that when I've been writing something and realized, oh, wait a minute, this was in this movie. That's probably where I got that. Never mind. But it's it's a lot.
3: Well, and it's not like Bogosian adapting his own thing. You're adapting someone else's thing without their permission. Like, I, I get that, you know, NYU film student. But like, you know that, like, you know that that's somebody else's thing. And like, he's made amends for it, which is good. But but again, but again, like the, it, it is hard to be like, but also you named it the thing.
0: And I was trying to tell Mr. Minion You know, I'm like, hey, we've talked about plagiarism and stuff on the show many times before. That's kind of my bag, you know. It's kind of how I made my bones back in the early 90s, you know, was talking about plagiarism. So at least he wasn't like, oh, yeah, yeah, I was a big fan of Joe Frank. I have a poster of him. You know, it's like, okay, that doesn't really work. Just because you have a poster of the thing doesn't mean you
4: get to rip off the
0: thing. I love
3: Ringo Lamb.
4: I brought the thing to mass audiences. They wouldn't know about the thing if it wasn't for me. Yeah.
3: You mean stealing things whole cloth is not okay? Shocking. Joseph Minion just, he didn't get far enough away from it before people found out. That's what this is. I mean, if if you were able to get two or three years away where everybody thinks it's your thing and nobody's going to argue against you, then it it doesn't matter. But that's... Or
0: what you do is the next screenplay you write ends up getting nominated for an Oscar and you have a huge movie company behind you run by a total piece of shit and his brother, then maybe you can wipe all this under the rug and not have to ever fess up to After Hours at all.
3: Wouldn't that be weird if somebody did that and got away with it? Like, their entire career? Yeah. This in- this industry is crazy.
4: Maybe then you could do some movie where you get an actress into, like, a car accident and you include that shot in the movie. That would be kind of cool, too. <laughs>
3: And she almost dies or is, like, permanently maimed. Wouldn't that be cool? On-set safety? Fuck it.
0: Minion and Scorsese would go
4: on to work together the next year. They made an Amazing Stories together. I just watched that this week. Yeah, it kind of has the weird thing of not really resolving, but it's a cool little episode. It's very creepy. Well, talk talking about
0: Amazing Stories, Griffin Dunn was in a fantastic episode. It was a... Paul Bartel took his... What was it? Secret Cinema the short that he made and turned it into a episode of amazing stories so the short is great that bartell made but the episode that he made was just as good so really fun stuff all right guys let's go ahead and we're going to take a break and we'll be back right after these brief messages
2: hey do you like movies of course you do you're listening to mike white's phenomenal podcast the projection booth I'm here, however, to tell you about another movie loving podcast, The Shameless Picture Show. My name is Michael Byers, and the show was created by myself and my good buddy in filmmaking, Nick Richards, in 2016 as a way for him and I to stay connected and to keep movies in our lives. Premise is simple. Each of us composed a list of shame filled with movies we've either missed, had no interest in, or just feel the other one should have seen. We've covered a wide range of films from Heathers, The Godfather, The Exorcist, You're the Hunter from the Future, Phantom Tollbooth, a slew of amazing Vinegar Syndrome titles, and some that are not so good, plus our massive Rocky episode that features a new interview with Lloyd Kaufman himself, talking about his friendship with John G. Avildsen, And I personally can't wait for you to hear us and join the fight to keep film culture alive. You can find our show on iTunes, Google play stitcher radio, and of course, SoundCloud. All
0: right, we are back and we are talking about after hours and yeah, for a movie that Pauline Kale says is pretty darn vapid. I think we've given this a pretty good discussion so far.
4: It's funny because usually when I'm going to do a podcast on something, I kind of have a thesis statement of, all right, this is what my basic idea that I think about it. And I came to this one like, I don't know exactly what I'm going to say. I don't know what all of this specifically means in the movie. And it is kind of fun hashing through it and seeing all these weird bits to it and all these weird themes and motifs to it.
3: And I like that it may mean nothing. And that's, I mean, that's almost the fun of it, right? It's like, oh, it could mean something. Or effectively, it's just a fun story about Griffin Dunn running around Soho, and then getting dropped back at his office at the end of the morning, like or the end of the day, like that th- there is that duality to this movie. Cause there is a lot of on the nose stuff, but it doesn't get in the way of a good movie. And that's the sign of a quality director is being able to infuse those things, but not allowing it to overwhelm your movie. And boy, Scorsese, huh? What a du- Thank God he did a lot more movies, right? Thank God this wasn't the end of his career. Because again, to me as As someone who's in their early 30s thinking about a universe where we don't have goodfellas in everything post this movie, that's a hard pill to swallow.
4: See, it's Scorsese. I don't think he could have stopped making movies. If it wasn't this, he would have found something. But it's it's in his blood. There's no way he could have put it down.
3: But I'm glad it's this. I
4: am glad it's this. I think this is a terrific movie, and I love that this was the time, you know,
0: I mentioned Desperately Seeking Susan, I mentioned Who's That Girl, but another one that we have to talk about is Something Wild. From the next year, Jonathan Demme also having this kind of mystery woman, the Melanie Griffith character, Psycho Boyfriend, oh my god, one of the best Ray Liotta performances, I mean yes he is fantastic as henry hill but my god is he so good in something wild and then jeff daniels just being this you know kind of yuppie type character and investment banker i think much more of a yuppie than griffin dunn just being tortured throughout this entire film i freaking love it I'm
4: embarrassed to say I still haven't gotten to that one. <laughs> it's, oh it's a, boy, you were know. in for a treat! I got my f- I forgot to find a way to see it now that Netflix is shutting down its DVD service because it's. I haven't seen it streaming anywhere, but been mean to get to it. Well,
0: and of course, you know it's Jonathan Demme, so you get all of these great regulars. You've got, of course, Charles Napier shows up in here, and you've got, you know, bands that are coming in because he always had musicians in his stuff. He has Tracy Walter in there as well. You know, Kenneth Utt producing as well as showing up inside of here but my god yeah ray Liotta, fucking amazing he plays this psychopath and he is so good and that was another one that the first time i watched it i didn't really care for it and it was my ex-wife showed me that movie and i really fell for it the second time so you know there's a there's some things i can say about my ex-wife but her taste in movies wasn't one of them so she always had some some good flicks to help me out with.
3: It blows my mind to hear you say, I watched Goodfellas and I didn't get it.
0: When it switched to the third act and suddenly becomes that manic, coked out, jump into the fire type stuff, for whatever reason, that turned me off. I just couldn't handle that switch. Now it's one of the best moments in the film when all of a sudden, you know, that, you know, that the date comes up and you're just like, Oh, here we go. And that boom, boom, boom. And I'm like, yes, this is great. And when he started to address the camera and everything right towards the end, I was just like, Oh, I, whatever reason, I just didn't like it. But you know, now it's, it's right up there. You know, it's one of my favorite films.
3: And I think, you know, you mentioned Goodfellas and I wanted to compare Griffin Dunn and Ray Liotta because there is a rat trapped in a maze quality to both of them in both of their movies because in this movie, you know, Griffin Dunn is never not the rat. He's always the rat in the maze, trying to get out of the maze, no matter how hard he tries. And in Goodfellas, Ray Liotta isn't the rat until he is the rat. And I'm not talking about when he's a stool pigeon, but there's a point in the movie, and you're talking, you just mentioned it, where it all of a sudden essentially becomes After Hours because we're seeing the movie in real time in that final, you know, third act, and it's and it- in a lot of ways, it's informed by some of the decisions that Scorsese makes here, where we have this kind of, the world is bearing down on you, and it feels like something is about to explode. And again, in that movie, we know where that ends up going. He gets arrested, and you know that's when the jail cell closes down on him finally. But it's also the moment where he becomes the rat of the movie, and the rat who rats on everybody else and becomes the stool pigeon. But I like how Scorsese at least... In this time as a director, he's really interested in exploring stories about these people that feel trapped, whatever that means to them, be it trapped in the the mundane life that they lead and they're looking for something else, being actually afraid of being trapped. But again, it all comes back to this idea of. What are you willing to do to get your your dream? Like, what are you willing to do to get the American dream, at least in After Hours and Goodfellas? And that's what I love about this movie is ultimately it is about like the lengths one might go to to secure their uh, their dream or what they want to do in life. And all these things that ultimately get in the way that stop them possibly from being able to achieve it or live it in perpetuity.
4: And I do think there's a lot of be careful what you wish for quality to this movie. He wants to experience the artistic life, and he finally gets to see it up close. And it makes absolutely no sense to him whatsoever. And I was interested to look at this also in comparing Paul to Travis Bickle, that they're kind of flip sides of that one where you have this lonely guy who can't really do well with normal people because he's unstable. And here you have a normal guy who can't deal with these people because they're unstable.
3: And you got to wonder what those characters are like in Griffin Dunn's life outside of the Soho people, if he's just as walking through that version of his life with those people and this, you know, this is the exciting evening, even if he's so out of sorts, he'll go and tell his, you know, friends when he's at, you know, the dinner at the end of the week. Oh my God, you guys won't believe what happened to me. And they're just like, whatever, who cares?
4: He'll do an NPR monologue about it. It'll be great. (laughs)
0: I just feel like he wouldn't tell anybody. For some reason, I feel like he doesn't have that many friends outside of work or even at work. It just feels like he's such a loner to me. He feels very much like the narrator from Fight Club to me, where it's just like, you know, I guess it's probably that shot of Ed Norton with the TV remote flipping the channels is very similar to Paul with his like keyboard type thing that he's flipping the channels with. I just really felt the same thing. And then plus, you know, you've got the themes of insomnia with Fight Club and, you know, here he is I love that you know, push in on the clock. It's 1130, but he's still calling this girl that he just happened to meet at that diner. Where Scorsese's parents are, are also dining.
3: Well, speaking of a movie that has to do with masculinity, and, right, I mean, I, I when I think of Fight Club, I think of toxic masculinity, run amok. And this movie is, again, like, I don't know what the masculinity and emasculation point of this movie is. I don't know if there is a point outside of just It being part of his character, but that's another kind of connection there. I think it's more fleshed out in Fight Club. I think here it's just kind of a a fun little thing that he can't seem to figure out how to interact with anybody, let alone women. The only normal interactions he has are with men, seemingly.
0: Yeah, I brought up the whole one crazy night. And this doesn't take place in one night, but a lot of it does. This feels like it would be a good companion piece with Eyes Wide Shut. Especially this whole thing, like... Tom Cruise couldn't get laid if he had a $100 bill sticking out of his fly in that movie, and here's the same thing. Like Griffin Dunn goes through all of these different women characters, and he never gets any play. I don't think that he would want to, and he gets come on to quite a few times, but... He never gets laid.
4: And in that movie, too, every time he has an opportunity to get laid, there's like this sense of danger behind it. Every woman he's potentially with, like the prostitute in that one, oh, it turns out she was HIV positive. You could have been in huge trouble if you had gone ahead with it. There's always this danger just under the surface. Yeah. And much like this one, there's a lot of stuff in the background that's never totally explained in Eyes Wide Shut that makes it sort of a riddle that you can never quite figure out. And also, you know, as soon as I say Eyes Wide Shut, I hear that one
0: piano note go on. And thinking about the Howard Shore score for this, oh, wow. You know, of course, it's Scorsese, right? So he's got all of these, you know, needle drops throughout the entire thing, which work very well. But I think this was the first time he had used Howard Shore. And this was, I want to say, he said something on the commentary like this was the first score that he had had written for a film uh, since taxi driver. So all of those other scores or all those other soundtracks must have all been needle drops. And I was very surprised that there isn't just like on the soundtrack for after hours, you get the Howard Shore music, you get some of those jukebox hits, but you don't get like the compilation of here's all the songs. It's kind of like what Goodfellas, like I, I did myself a soundtrack where it's like, here's all the songs that I used, not just a, a selection of these. And to see a Scorsese
4: movie with no Rolling Stones in it.
0: Selections or even a
3: cover of a Rolling Stones. Yeah, you get like Peggy
4: Lee and, but, yeah.
3: Get the monkeys. I think The Last Train to Clarksville is my favorite song in the entire movie, because, boy, that's the perfect song for that horrifying nightmare of an apartment that he wanders into. Yikes.
4: And this was like only, I think, the sixth score for Howard Shore and I think only his third in America. Before that, it was his Canadian stuff with Cronenberg and he is so good at weird and creepy and ominous. And I like that this hits that but in a completely different way, not the weird low tones he would normally use in the Cronenberg films.
3: It's like positive Videodrome. It's like what if Videodrome had a happy theme? Like, okay, sure, do that.
4: Yeah. And
0: some of it is nightmarish. Like when you put on the DVD and you've got the uh, the music that plays while you're looking at the menu, it's kind of like this intense, it almost sounds like video game music, but like really intense video game music.
3: I can just see Griffin Dunn running through the streets and I hear that music. And it's like, it makes sense. It works. Like... I, you know, it is, you know, we've already mentioned the video gameness of the movie, but there is a fetch quest nature to everything that he does that, yeah, just makes you feel like, OK, like there is a progr- there is a natural, logical progression to everything in this movie that while it might seem narratively weird and video gamey, it works for something like this because it adds to that chronological nature of the way the movie is told it
4: also goes to that sort of how you treat non player characters in video games is very important that he's basically saved because he does something nice for june without any kind of real guarantee that it's going to help him or any way he just suddenly he puts on his tie he straightens himself up he you know says he's interested in her and asks to dance he's like doing something nice to this woman who's totally ignored in the corner and that's just happens to be the thing that saves his life one Crazy
0: Night movies didn't start in the 80s, but they definitely had a real uh fixed time here. And I, yeah, we're still doing One Crazy Night movies. I know like Superbad was One Crazy Night movie, but when you look at like Choose Me from 84, Into the Night from 85, Modern Girls from 86, Blind Date from 87, Adventures in Babysitting in 87, Quick Change takes place in 90, and then, then it starts to peter out a little bit, but like you still have like career opportunities, mystery date. You know, it just goes on and on. I mean, some of my favorite movies are One Crazy Night movies. I love American Graffiti, I love Days of Confused, I love Go, the Doug Lyman film. So it's like
3: What about Return of the Living Dead? Or 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 and I saw it a couple times when I looked, and I again I would agree with this uh, classification of the movie over the one that really irks me, Die Hard. I would rather this be a Die Hard be a One Crazy Night movie than the, it's a Christmas movie. Okay, we know who you are. We know what you think. Fine. You're entitled to your opinion.
4: And we already brought up The Warriors. And I mean, that's definitely one of the best One Crazy Night movies.
3: Or From Dusk Till Dawn and Rocky Horror Picture Show as well. Again, like some of them don't really make a point of that being the thing. But uh, I mean, even a movie that I love, Empire Records, that's like one crazy day. Like, again, like there's something about these kinds of movies that resonate with me personally. So I don't know what it is. I, I've never been able to put my finger on it, but maybe it's because I like having these kinds of adventures and I would like to have more of them in my life. And they only ever happen when they happen like this, where it's like a, a, a confluence of events that just keep.
4: And From dusk Till Dawn has that genre switch midway through. They're like, it's a crime movie. No, now it's a vampire movie.
0: Which I really like that. I always felt that they did that a little late in the movie, but the screenplay, I think they do it about 10 minutes before, and I thought that was even better. You know, we've talked about other crazy night movies here on the show. We did Assault on Precinct 13 and Night of the Creeps. We did do the Warriors all those years ago, so um, yeah, there's uh, definitely a lot of these. Detroit Rock City is another about one.
3: Four that we rooms? About. Have you done four rooms? I heard there's some Ugh. some people involved in that movie that went on to do other things as well. It's funny. I meant to bring that up as an example of how
4: specifically, how the character of Paul could have ended up if it hadn't been in the hands of a good actor. That I mean, I love Tim Roth, but man, his performance in that is so broad. It's like, oh. And and when um, Griffin Dunn starts to lose it in this movie, finds just that right level of frustration and kind of going manic without going over the top. In fact, during this, I was actually reading an interview with Paul Rudd about Quantumania, and he actually cited Griffin Dunn's performance in this, specifically the moment where he calls the police, and the cop's just like, get some sleep, buddy. And Dunn doesn't freak out like you'd expect. He's just like, oh, wow, wow, and just has that, that kind of minor freak out and apparently Rudd saw that and went, no, that's acting. I have to study acting to learn how to do that.
0: Alright, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show.
2: You yeah, left make me want a puke. We're liberal. We do the right thing. What if you
1: kill somebody whose death makes the world a better
2: place? It was Hitler. I mean, how would you kill him? We need a return, God darn it, of the promise of the Reagan-Bush years. No! The
1: Last Supper. Fellas wouldn't know a guy get a decent meal around here, would you? Is-
4: yes Yes. rated r now playing in new york and los angeles starts april 12th in additional cities
0: that's right we'll be back next week with a look at stacy titles the last supper until then i want to thank this week's co-hosts chris and tim so chris what is going on with you sir
3: oh keeping it real over at weirdingwaymedia.com where you and i put together a podcast network where you can find all the shows that you and i work on like this one like The show that I'm the most proud of right now, which is Bollywood Cinema Club, where I take a look at Indian cinema every other week. And Mike stops by from time to time. We talked about Triple R at one point, which I think if you don't know what that is at this point, I feel like you maybe don't listen to movie news. I feel like everybody knows what that is now. But uh, yeah, that's where you can find that show and so many other great shows over at uh, WeirdingWayMedia.com.
0: And Tim, what
4: is happening in your world, sir? Well, you can check out me and my wife discussing and occasionally arguing about movies at cinemaspection.com. We're also on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Amazon Music. We just started uploading video versions of our episodes on YouTube, and um, some of the random reviews we've been getting from people are really interesting. Apparently, woke college professors are warping my brain from what I'm told, so that makes things interesting. (laughs) Yeah, YouTube uh, comments are a very special breed of comments. I got a great speech about how Biden's going to lead us into war. And it was on their Blade Runner episode. I'm like, so does this mean you think Deckard's a replicant? (laughs) How did he know to leave that unicorn made out of a gum wrapper? Come
0: on. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out those other shows that Chris mentioned. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
1: It was a Chelsea morning, and the first thing that I saw was the sun through yellow curtains and a rainbow on the wall, the red, green, and gold to welcome you, crimson crystal beads to beckon. Oh, won't you stay, we'll put on a day, there's a sun show every set. By, and pigeons fly and papers lie waiting to blow away Woke up, it was a Chelsea morning and the first thing that I knew There was milk and toast and honey and a bowl of oranges too And the sun poured in like butterscotch and stuck to all myself